It reads like something out of an Indiana Jones story. A nerdy Indiana Jones story. Work with me here. The journey we're about to head off on centers on a sudden discovery, a fate anonymity, and a story of redemption. Oh, I like that. Redemption stories are the best. Classics like On the Waterfront, Dumb and Dumber. Dumb and Dumber's a classic. <laughs> The year is 1952. Fade into the wild, unkempt rainforest of Borneo. A missionary is scooping up samples of dirt. Okay, this is kind of cool. I'm with you. This seemingly ordinary cup of dirt has a secret in it. A bacteria misidentified as a fungus. A mycolatopsis orientalis. Overhead, a plane flies out of the jungle, carrying it to the exotic, distant... Eli Lilly and company Wait, what? You've lost me again. Hidden in this cup is a drug, perhaps now one of the most famous antibiotics in medicine. It's a small molecule that curiously kills off Staphylococcus. After purification, it was called, no joke, the Vanquisher. Like a bad Marvel comic <laughs> superhero. But you probably know it by its generic name. When it came to market, the Don Drapers of the world combined... Vanco for Vanquish. And Mycin for its not-actually-a-fungus roots. To make Vanco Mycin. But like we mentioned, it would quickly be pushed out of the limelight. Because at the same time, a new superstar, <laughs> Methicillin, was born. Oh. <laughs> so dramatic. I know it is. And Vanco would have to live in the shadows because <laughs> oh. of fear of its perceived toxicities. Poor Vanco. <laughs> and these range from cytopenias... To the somewhat awkwardly named Red Man Syndrome... To Odo and Nephrotoxicity. So let's dive a little deeper into vancomycin. And we'll see if we can help exercise its demons. Hello, and welcome to Mind the Gap. I'm Janine Knudsen. And I'm Steve Liu. Thank you to ID pharmacists Polly Shinpung and Justin Siegfried from NYU for peer reviewing this podcast. So today on Mind the Gap, we're going to be discussing the misunderstood side of our hero, the Vanquisher, specifically nephrotoxicity. So our teaching points today will be... Number one, how did we even get here? And number two, what is vancomycin-induced nephrotoxicity? And how common is it? And number three, monitoring. Why do we do it? And what is it good for? So, as we mentioned, Vanco's earliest history starts in 1952, during what has been called the Golden Age of Discovery for antibiotics. Its first crude formulation was known as Mississippi Mud for its muddy brown color. Named, of course, for Mississippi's famous mud pies. Actually, Steve, random fact, but the Mississippi Mud Pie wasn't popularized until the 1970s. Huh. So this name actually refers to the cocktail. You heard of it? No. <laughs> no, I don't know. Or the famous mud surrounding the Mississippi. And I've heard of that. This first muddy crude form of vancomycin was only about 70% pure explaining its color. And it's thought that this impure version is what led observers to see so much renal failure. So exactly how much renal toxicity are we talking here? Well, actually, even as late as 30 years after vanco was discovered, that brings us to the 1980s, there had only been 20 total cases of nephrotoxicity reported. That's it? Yeah, and to top it off, most of the cases were reported in conjunction with other nephrotoxic drugs, like aminoglycosides. But reputations are hard to shake. And as a result, when the more manageable penicillins came to the forefront... Vancomycin faded to the back, with its reputation frozen in ice, just like <laughs> Captain America. But it wasn't done. Like any good superhero, it wouldn't be deterred. So flash forward to the disco-obsessed 80s. Mirroring the advancements in society and synthesizer technology. Think the transition from 70s David Bowie to 80s David Bowie. That'll <laughs> yeah, help. exactly that. <laughs> Advancements in exchange and copper crystallization allowed for purities of 90% to be achieved when making vancomycin. And it would be far north of the Mississippi, actually all the way up in Motown, Detroit, that we would see vancomycin's <laughs> resurgence. I'm not singing this morning. 
<laughs> it doesn't take too much high IQ to see what you're doing to me. I don't even know <laughs> the, the tune. Do you know, you know how to think? <laughs> think. <laughs> I hate you, Steve. At this point, the first hospital-acquired MRSA outbreaks started being documented. Epidemiologists were able to trace them to primarily iatrogenic causes. But it wasn't long before it jumped to the community and community-acquired MRSA began to be seen. Hospitalists were desperate, and as a result, vancomycin use began to rise. This is ground control to vanco. Well, where does that leave us in terms of the idiopathic vancomycin-induced toxicity? It seems like it fits nicely into our niche of things you hear about, but may or may not be true. As a quick preface, vanco-induced nephrotoxicity has varying definitions, but here's the most common and traditional definition. Two consecutive rises in creatinine by 50% of baseline, or by more than 0.5 total. Okay, so let's try to pick through the data. If we start with the IDSA's published guidelines on this topic, we see that a majority of published observational studies do show higher bank troughs correlating to higher risk of acute kidney injury, or AKI. Interestingly, though, this only applies to vanco troughs, not vanc peaks. Uh, those actually don't correlate to nephrotoxicity at all. Wait, really? More on that in a moment. Well, here's another helpful paper. A large meta-analysis done in 2016 looked at seven RCTs that compared vanco to other antibiotics. This paper, delightfully named Vancomycin and the Risk of AKI, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis was in the Clinical Journal of the American Society of Nephrology, and it found that there was a modest but significant increase in nephrotoxicity in patients who got vanco, to the tune of a relative risk of 2.45. That's a lot. Yeah, and in these trials, incidences ranged anywhere between zero cases uh, per 100 people to 20 cases per 100 people. Well, then there's the other literature that show an increased risk of AKI when vanco is given with aminoglycosides or with piperacillin tazobactam. These date from back to case reports in the 1950s 50s, and even more observational trials since 2016. Okay, so any other risk factors we know about? Uh, yeah, so we said risk factors included vancotrops over 15, but also a daily dose greater than 4 grams, duration of therapy, critical illness. But to clarify, even though most people with nephrotoxicity had troughs greater than 15, by contrast, the vast majority of people with troughs greater than 15 never get nephrotoxicity. In other words, renal complications from only vancomycin simply aren't that common, making interpretation of that interaction between vanco levels and AKI difficult. Probably the biggest challenge presented in looking at trial data is that vanco is mainly cleared renally. And a majority of the studies on vanco toxicity are retrospective or observational, making them vulnerable to all that confounding and proving causality. For example, is the elevated vanco level causing nephrotoxicity or is it just a signal that the kidneys aren't working well? Since we don't know what conclusions we can draw from all those papers we just mentioned, let's get even more fundamental by talking about the mechanism of renal failure to see if that convinces us. Right. So how does vancomycin cause toxicity? Well, it's supposed to be mostly one of two ways. So that's either acute interstitial nephritis, or AIN. Essentially an acute allergic reaction to the drug. Or from a dose-dependent oxidative stress resulting in renal tubular injury. After all, those little guys in the kidneys are responsible for getting vanco out of the body. So where does that leave us in terms of vancomycin-induced toxicity? I'm not sure that made it better. I know. Uh, vancomycin nephrotoxicity isn't very common, and most papers that tried to study it weren't able to show true causation. But this does bring us back to the question of why do we measure troughs? It seems like the peaks would be at least more related to efficacy and drug toxicity. You did promise to explain that. 
All right, yeah. So let's trace back to the history again. In some ways, it's not such a bad thing that the Vanquisher was shunned during the 60s and 70s. And just like any awkward teen, Vanko really (laughs) just needed some time to define itself. Uh, You see, even though we mentioned that Vank was shelved, what actually happened was that while that was occurring, people were trying to figure out how it worked and how it caused toxicities. The prevailing thought at the time was that it was a concentration-dependent killer. Quick refresher on that. Concentration-dependent antibiotics. Like aminoglycosides. These guys kill better and faster with higher concentrations. And for decades, Vanko was thought to be like this. For ages, because of this misunderstanding, Vanko peaks were frequently measured and targeted with drug dosing. Super interestingly, it turns out that neither bacterial killing nor toxicity are related to peaks. Vanko is all about the so-called area under the curve, or AUC. And more precisely, it kills based on a ratio of that AUC to the minimum inhibitory concentration, or the MIC. So I'm going to try to simplify that, but I'll probably make it more complicated. Uh, The area under the curve that we're talking about comes from plotting the total amount of drug over time that the bacteria is exposed to. Pretty straightforward. It's like an integral. To find whether or not the bacteria is susceptible, we need to compare it to the bacteria's ability to resist it over time, or the minimum inhibitory concentration. And so if the bacteria is susceptible to that AUC compared to the MIC, we say that that falls under that breakpoint. Okay, in simpler terms, think of it as the amount of drug a bacteria sees over a 24-hour period versus how resistant the bacteria is to the antibiotic. But then you might ask yourself, how is a trough enough? Uh, Don't we need the whole curve to show how much drug is present in a 24-hour period? Sure, but you're not going to stick some poor guy four to five times a day to get the curve. Uh, Because then you'd be a jerk. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Especially since, as it turns out, some smart math was done showing that a trough of 15 to 20 should hit that target AUC over MIC ratio for susceptible Staph aureus bacteria. Let's just keep in mind that troughs are actually a poor man's measurement of the AUC. The AUC, by definition, is the more accurate corollary to toxicity and also efficacy. It also depends on the type of tissue you're trying to get into. Which is why we don't always need troughs up to 20 for soft tissue infections. But let's circle back to our definition of vanco-induced AKI. What should you do if you're worried you boxed your patient's kidneys with vanco? Let's give it even more context. What if the patient was getting Vanco for MRSA endocarditis and their creatinine increased from 0.5 to 1 over a few days? Would you definitely stop the drug? So knowing what we know now... Vancomycin nephrotoxicity isn't very common, and most papers that tried to study it weren't able to show true causation. The nephrotoxicity could be due to many things, like the infection that you're treating, or dehydration, etc. So we shouldn't rush before ruling other things out, but checking a trough and making sure you're at the right dose is probably the best thing to do. Great. Okay, so we covered a lot of important clinical pharmacology today. And Indiana Jones. Don't forget Indiana Jones stories. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. Here's a summary of our key teaching points. Number one, vancomycin is an old drug that is great at killing Staph aureus. Uh, It used to have a lot of side effects, but now since we have a more pure version, maybe those aren't as big a deal. Uh, But the risk of nephrotoxicity is higher if you combine it with an aminoglycoside or piperacillin tazobactam. Don't forget. Totally fair. And number two, vanco-induced acute kidney injury is defined as an increase of creatinine by 0.5 or more than 50% of baseline, whichever is bigger. And it's not that common, but the risk may be higher with vanc troughs greater than 15 or total daily doses greater than 4 grams. Or those antibiotics I just mentioned. <laughs> she hates but aminoglycosides. really it's all about the whole <laughs> AUC over MIC thing. Vanco is not a concentration-dependent killer, but since it's hard to measure AUC, we can use troughs instead of peaks to measure efficacy and watch for toxicity. 
So now would be a great time to shout out to some of our favorite people in the hospital. Uh, these are clinical pharmacists who perfected this research. Uh, if it ever gets too confusing and you're lucky enough to be in a place with an antibiotic stewardship pharmacist, you should definitely talk to these guys. They are experts in this stuff. Yeah, I miss the good old days of residency. Never thought I'd say that. <laughs> Literally 20 days ago. <laughs> Don't remind me, Steve. <laughs> when I had a pharmacist round with us, like in the ICU. So, as always, we want to encourage you to check out the data, too. Take a look at the links below the podcast on the Clinical Correlations website so you can take the time to judge the data for yourself. And sound smart on rounds. Super smart. After all, this is a podcast talking about those gaps in our knowledge because you only heard it the one time. So if you really want to feel confident in the data, take the time to pick it apart yourself. And if there are any other topics you'd like to hear us discuss, please let us know. I'm Steve Liu. And I'm Janine Knudsen. And remember, mind the gap. Thanks for listening. Disclaimer. Opinions in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Please do not use this podcast for medical advice, but instead consult with your healthcare provider. You start... Two, what is vancomycin-induced nephropathy and how common is it? And three, monitoring. Why do we do it and what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> it really as, song. That's what it was a reference to. <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> so, as we mentioned, Wait, Vanco- then you have to sing it. Fine. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Go for it. Absolutely Absolutely nothing. nothing. Say it again. Ow! (laughs) So many good references. It's just going to be all music references. (laughs) Wait, you want to do that line again? (laughs) 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 Okay, so we're winning at this recording. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.